Well, I bet if you were honest about it, you would probably be a person who, when a pastor stands before you and they talk about the subject of money, that you probably start asking the question of what is his motive? Does he have any ulterior motives? Now, the reality is when you walk into a church, you realize when you walk in the doors that there are budgets that have to be met and there are ministries that need to be advanced and staff that have to be compensated and outreaches that need to be supported. And and yet, you probably wonder, is this pastor who's standing before me, is he talking about money because he's really trying to help me and to help my own spiritual growth, or is there an ulterior motive? Maybe there's something in it for him if he talks about it. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before or not of two guys who were on a private jet and they're flying when all of a sudden the jet goes down and they land on a deserted island. And the one guy wakes up and he looks to his right and he sees his buddy there. And so he starts shaking him to wake him up and he's like, wake up, wake up! We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no communication. There's no transportation. We're going to die. And the other guy kind of gets shaking a little bit and he's like, relax. My pastor will find us. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. We are doomed. There is no hope. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The other guy goes, no, 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 don't worry. Relax. My pastor will find us. And his friend said, no, no, no. You don't understand the gravity of this situation. There is no hope for us. And the other guy said, relax, I'm worth a hundred million dollars. Our church is in a capital campaign to build a new building. My pastor will find us. <laughs> now, if you're worth a hundred million and I don't know yet, I'd like to take you out for lunch for free. <laughs> You know, I'm in a very uh, unique situation to be able to talk about this topic of finances and money this morning because the reality is the first five years that I pastored here at the JAR, I didn't take a salary. In other words, I uh, worked for free. In fact, it wasn't until some of the church leadership got around me and said, hey, we're going to force you to actually take a salary, did I take one? They, they were very concerned that uh, if something were to happen to me and there wasn't uh, money already budgeted for someone with my education, my experience to do that, that it would be very difficult for there to be a transition if anything, you know, God forbid, ever happened to me. But I've never pushed for a high salary. I've never asked for a raise. So I, so I feel pretty confident that I'm kind of like you who are sitting there today, that... Uh, I don't do this job for money. And folks, I'm not here to try to ask anything out of you. But what my hope is, over the next couple of weeks, that I'll be able to actually give you a gift that might help you to have some freedom in your life. You see, I've been a follower of Jesus for many years. And the reality is, Probably nothing has taught me how to trust and honor God than this concept, this idea of money management and finances. Nothing has uh, helped me to learn how to honor and trust Him more in this area of my finances, or maybe better said, His finances, than understanding how I live and give my resources. For me personally, 
just as much as I learn from the Bible and I learn how to pray and I learn how to use other spiritual disciplines in my life to help me grow closer to God, knowing how to trust God with my resources are on that same page. And that's why we're calling this series Trust Funding a Revolution of the Heart because the reality is that what happens in this area of your life happens in your heart. This is a subject matter that forces me to really think about what does my heart look like in this area of my resources. This is a subject matter that's going to force you to understand and discern your heart of what's important to you. This is a subject matter that will call us to deal with the question, how much do I really, really trust God? Jesus said these words. He said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's go ahead and let's uh, read this out loud together. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus is saying, if I could look at your visa statement, if I could look at your receipts, if I could look at your checkbook, I'll get a pretty good indication of what's in your heart, about where your heart is. For instance, let's say this past week you got a, uh, an idea that you were going to buy some stock in Microsoft. And the reason you bought the stock in Microsoft is because you got a tip that Google and Microsoft were merging together to pretty much take on all of the electronic world. Well, when you bought that stock, a part of your heart goes to Microsoft. You bought stock, that's where your treasure is. Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, they have more of your heart now. You open the business section up now with real interest to kind of see, well, how's Microsoft doing? How are things going? A month ago you didn't care, but now that you've like put your heart into it, there's a piece of you that is asking that. For where your treasure is... <coughs> Excuse me, there your heart will be also. One test, folks, in life that reveals whether or not there is a trust funding mentality in God or not is how do you handle economic storms when they hit your life? This morning, I have no doubt in a size of uh, attendance that's here this morning, that some of you are going through an economic storm. It's like this tsunami economically has just kind of pushed its way into your life and you're just kind of holding on. Some of you owe more on your house than what your house is worth right now. The price of gas keeps going up and up and up, and you wonder, how are we going to be able to afford this? The time that you were unemployed put a hole in your family life that you barely are holding on. And you think about the fiscal cliff that we just experienced or, or got close to uh, about a month ago, and, and you're fearful and you're wondering, what fiscal cliff is going to hit my life? Well, Genesis chapter 41 is a passage we're going to look at this morning, and it gives us some hope in the midst of going through an economic storm. It tells us the story of an economic hurricane that hit the life of a country, and particularly a guy who was in charge, a guy by the name of Joseph. Now, some of you may know the story of Joseph, maybe some of you don't, so I'll give you a little background. He, uh, when he first comes onto the scene, he is a 17-year-old kid who uh, is given this amazing Technicolor dream coat by his dad. And the only problem is, is that there are 10 other sons who don't get a coat. So you get this beautiful, colorful coat, and no one else in the family gets that, and they get jealous, and they get ticked off. And one day Joseph comes out to the field to visit them and they grab him and they sell him as a slave to 
a group of people who were heading towards Egypt. And then the brothers actually go and they take this beautiful coat and they kill an animal, they put some blood on that, and then they take this coat back to their father and say, Joseph's been killed by a wild animal. Some of you probably have siblings like this, don't you? Then Joseph goes off to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he is falsely accused of some charges. He's thrown into prison, left to rot. And that's where we pick it up when we hit the story. Now, Pharaoh, uh, the leader of all of Egypt, he's like El Presidente of the entire country of Egypt. He has a dream. And he has this dream, and he can't figure out this dream, and so he learns that Joseph is a person who's been given a gift to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh calls him to come, and Pharaoh gives him this dream, and this was the dream. (coughs) Pharaoh's dream was that he had seven happy, healthy cows walking out of a river one day. And then after them, seven scrawny, skinny bone cows walk to the river and they eat the big, fat, healthy cows. So Pharaoh looks to Joseph and he says, what does this mean? And Joseph said that these fat cows, these healthy cows, these seven cows represent seven years of prosperity for all of Egypt. That there are going to be good economic times for seven years. But the seven scrawny cows who came and ate the seven healthy cows represent seven years of famine and economic storm that's going to hit after the seven good years. So there's going to be seven good years, but then there's going to be seven horrible years. Now, if you're a politician, think about that. If you knew this in advance and you got that word, that would be some really good news. And so Pharaoh's really excited, so he brings Joseph out of prison into his chambers and he names him his second man in charge, the vice president of all of Egypt. And he asked him to go ahead and prepare Egypt for the famine that would come seven years from that point. And in Genesis chapter 41, this is where we pick it up. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city... He put the food grown in the field surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping record because it was beyond measure. So there are these seven years of good economic times. It was like the time that we experienced here in our own country pre-2008. There were bumper crops every single year. And Joseph, during this time, started some storm preparation. You see, times of prosperity, folks, are one of the best times to prepare for economic storms. Let's think about it in our own country. 9-11 hit, and all of a sudden it destroyed our economy. The stock market took a big dive. Unemployment began to rise. There was this launch of a whole worldwide war on terror. But gradually, after a few years, things kind of got put back together and the economy actually started to improve. Stocks started going up. Unemployment was at a super low. Everybody who wanted a home could come and get a home. In fact, financial institutions were lending at such a rate 
that if you could afford 120% of a home, they were like, come on in. We are here to help you. And institutions financially were booming. But instead of using that time to increase our reserves and save for a rainy day, what many Americans did was they just bought more, charged more, financed more, spent more, and saved less. Because Americans love to spend. And we spend things on the strangest stuff. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever bought a Bowflex Thighmaster T-Bow P90X before, and that thing's just collecting dust now. But you bought it because one night you were sitting there and that infomercial came on, and you're just like, I've got to have it. I've got to have this. And it comes in the box and you undo it, and you're like, Thighmaster, how in the heck is this thing? Whoa, what's, yeah, throw that away, you know? And everyone was spending. Everyone was spending. And then 2008 came, and we hit this great recession. And just like Storm Sandy, it just came on the East Coast, but it came through our whole country and just wiped and destroyed people's lives. And so what's happened? People have gotten more cautious they pulled back. They live on less. Many people are, are saving. But this is my concern. Unemployment continues to kind of go down. Institutions are lending money now. And did anybody see the stock market this week? It hit 14000 And so people's 401Ks and their mutual funds and everything's looking good. But the reality is we really haven't changed. I saw a statistic this week. Blew my mind. People who are 40 years of age or less and make $40,000 or less, that on average, those individuals spend... 118% of their income. High achievers, aren't we? I mean, don't just say at 100, let's go to 118%. Here's a verse I think that many of us probably should write down. Uh, It'll come up on the side screen. It says this, stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Proverbs 21.20. Not my word, so you don't. Don't don't yell at me later on, okay? But I have a feeling that that might get on some refrigerators this week, you know? Friends, if these are really good financial times for you or things are starting to kind of go up, and some of you, they are. Your 401Ks look better. Your mutual funds are bouncing back. you got to raise. Things are looking up. This ought to be a time where, like Joseph, you begin to start really thinking, how am I going to prepare for when the economic storm hits? Because everyone, sooner or later, is going to be hit by an economic storm. Sudden employment, unexpected medical expenses, a death in your family, divorce that you go through, and it can devastate you. Now, for most of us, Uh, we're in a financial storm right now. 2008 hit, and we're just still trying to make it. And for some of us, what we're doing is it feels a lot like us to be similar to that old REO Speedwagon song. And I think we have a little clip of it. Riding the storm out, waiting for the thaw out. Yeah, any of you remember that song? Raise your hand if you do. You're old. You're like, 
I had to go and research that today, you know, to, to find that out. Yeah. But many of us are just riding the storm out. We're waiting for the thaw out. Well, Joseph led the nation in saving and stockpiling for seven years during good economic times. Now, follow along what happens next. <coughs> the scripture says, The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to fill the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And then notice this. All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was everywhere. So how do you ride out an economic storm? Well, there are three things I want us to look at this morning, and the first thing is this, is that we have to be wise enough to use some of your reserves. You have to be wise enough to use some of your reserves. Now, with that statement right there, be wise enough to use some of your reserves, I would say that this gym today probably is split in half. Uh, in two different groups of people. The first group is this. Reserves. What are you talking about? Reserves? I have no idea. I don't have any reserves. Now, if you don't have any reserves, in your program, there was a little card. I'd like you all to pull it out right now because this right here could be worth your ticket uh, of admission today. Is the financial piece... University, that's tomorrow at 6 o'clock. And if you don't have an emergency fund, if you don't have a reserve fund, it is worth the $8 to come and register and be a part of this class. Because I was looking at some statistics this week, and you just saw Scotty and Shane, $11,000 that they paid down debt in just over about two years. The statistic says this, that people pay off $5,300 in debt and save $2,700 in the first year. So it's worth it. So if, if you're like, I don't know, and you know what will keep many of you, you, you won't do this. Because I've, I've taught on finances for eight years. Many of you won't do this. You know what the issue is? Your pride. You won't get beyond yourself to say, you know what, I need some help to know how to do this. I know that with Scotty and Shane because eight years ago, I was trying to encourage them. Hey, this is it. And it took a while. It took a process for them to do it. In fact, Shane used to always tell me, oh yeah, you talked about that 10, 10, 80, you know, give 10% to God, save 10%, live off the other 80. I wrote those numbers down for eight years. I just never followed the plan. And so I'm just telling you, some of you, you don't have to go because of me. I want you to go because of you. Because it will impact and save your life. And you will have freedom like you've never had before. So go do that. Now, others of you, when I said that, be wise enough to use some of your reserves, you almost had a heart attack. You're like, reserves? I would never give up any of my emergency funds. I mean, I would just never do that. I am a saver. I would never dip into my savings. Well, everybody thought that Hetty Green was living in poverty. She was so frugal that she would eat cold oatmeal because she didn't want to spend the money for electricity or gas to heat up her oatmeal. She bought all of her clothes at secondhand stores. When her son had a leg injury... She spent so much time trying to find free medical treatment that gangrene set into his leg and they had to amputate it. So imagine everybody's shocked when they go to Hetty Green's little shack and the only thing of worth that they found was this 
uh, soap tin that had four crackers in it. But in that, they also found a sheet of paper that showed that she had an estate worth $95 million. $31 million in one bank account alone. Now, I've just shared that story, and some of you are just, right now, the only thing you're thinking about is, oh, God, please send me an ant like that, you know? <laughs> and that's the only thing you're thinking about. So, we got two groups of people. We have uh, one group of people that are like reserves. What reserves? What's that? And then we have another group of people that are savers that are like, there's no way I would ever relinquish money. Now, I tend to be a saver. I've always been a saver in my life, um, throughout my life. Uh, when we were growing up as kids and we would do chores, we would get an allowance for what those were. And I saved everything from age 8 to age 18. Never spent any money at all. Now, my brother and sister, Tim and Lisa, were spenders. And what would happen is, by the end of the week, they would say, can we borrow some money? Because we're broke. And I said, sure, for a nominal interest, 100%. True story, ask my parents. And, uh, man, I made it big, you know, during that time. Now, the reality is we have an emergency fund, my wife Jennifer and I, and I hate to dip in that thing. I despise doing it. Well, uh, about a month ago, we had a, a, an emergency that hit our family. Our uh, refrigerator wasn't working so well. Jennifer got up one day, and she was going to make some eggs for the girls, and she got the eggs out, and she pulled out the egg. She got ready to crack it. wouldn't open. Cracked it again. Guess what the problem was? Egg was frozen. Now, she came up to me and she's like, hey, you know, I think we need to dip into our emergency savings to make sure that we can do that. I was like, no, let's just not eat eggs for a little while. You know? <laughs> I mean, eggs are kind of overrated anyways, right? So we went on for about two weeks. <coughs> I didn't call anybody because I'm a saver. And I got up one morning and, you know, I got sleep in my eyes. I get to the refrigerator and I pull out the orange juice. And I pull out a glass and I get ready to start pouring it. Guess what? Frozen orange juice. That didn't stop me. Hey, I'll just leave this on the counter, go upstairs, get my shower, get everything ready, and then I'll come back down. And I did, and I got my orange juice. Now, this was the problem. This past week, I got sick on Monday. And you know how orange juice sometimes is just like, you know, medicine to your soul. So I go down uh, stairs, I pull out the orange juice, I get ready to start pouring it, and it's frozen. Man, I picked up the phone, I called the first guy that was on the yellow pages. Get my refrigerator fixed, you know. And they came and did that. Now he gave me the old thermostat and he said it could be repairable for half price. I will sell it to anybody in this place. But I'm a saver. That's who I kind of am. So <laughs> look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 6. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and be wise. Even though they have no prince, governor, or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. You see, folks, ants are great savers in the summer because they know that the winter's going to come and they'll have to dig into that reserve. Now, <coughs> you can do this if you want, but get a magnifying glass, go to an ant hill, and look at that. You don't see a whole bunch of stressed out, overwhelmed ants, you know? They're not like freaking out about whether or not there's going to be enough food because they have saved all summer long. So they know it's okay. They have a trust funding mentality that says, I'm going to use my reserves and when spring comes, God's going to resupply 
what I need to eat, and it will be a good economic time. Now, did you notice in the passage that we looked at in the story of Joseph, when Egypt had all of these supplies for them, did Joseph just supply Egypt? No. The scripture says this, that people came from all over the world during the famine. They came for food. And Joseph didn't say, hey, 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 we're sorry you're starving to death, but this is just for us. No. He said, come and I'll provide for them as well. A second thing that we learn when we're riding out an economic storm is that we need to be generous enough to provide for others in need. <coughs> we need to be generous enough to provide for others in need. And this is an attitude, folks, that is just prevalent throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a law that stated Whenever you uh, planted your field or planted your vineyard and harvest came, you would not take out the outside section of it. You would leave it so that people who were under-resourced, people who were in need, could come and could take from your grain or from your grapes. Because just as God generously provided for them, now you have an opportunity to provide for others. In the New Testament, in chapter 4, in Acts, it says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed (coughs) that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, that all there was that in them, all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Friends, the reality is some people can't make it through economic times unless there is generosity from other people. This past week I read a section of a very fascinating book called um, Who Really Cares? It was written by a guy by the name of Arthur Brooks, who's a professor at Syracuse University. And the whole focus of the book is to try to figure out what is it that creates generosity in a person. And so part of his research was he took two groups that had similar populations. One was South Dakota and the other one was San Francisco, both about 800,000 people. Now, what he found when he did it was that both of these groups gave about $1,300 away to charitable causes. But here's the thing that was most fascinating to me. People in South Dakota, their average income is $48,000. You want to guess what the average income in San Francisco is? $84,000. In other words, people in South Dakota give 75% more of this $1,300 away of their income than folks in San Francisco. Now, why is that? Well, Dr. Brooks went ahead and he found that there were two central reasons why. The first one was faith, and the second one dealt with the family that you were raised in. Now, the first one, faith. He found that 50% of all people in South Dakota went to a house of worship regularly, to a church. 50%. You know what the percentage of people that go to a house of worship or a church in San Francisco is? 14%. And get this, only 10% of people in South Dakota never darken the door of a church. Guess how many people in San Francisco never darken the door of a church? 49%. And Dr. Brooks found that one of the great predictors of a person's generosity in their life 
had to do with either their faith or their family that they were raised in. He found that generous parents produce generous kids. For example, if you grew up in a household in which your parents volunteered and they gave to different causes, the reality is that's part of your DNA. That's who you have become. And so the reality is, when I looked at my own life, I found this to be very true. My parents have always given 10% of their income to the causes of Christ and his kingdom. All the time, it was just a part of what our family was about. And so believe it or not, it might sound crazy to some of you, but when I became uh, an adult then, it wasn't that difficult really for me to want to give away part of my income to the things of God and his kingdom. Now, I say that the first five years of our marriage, though, that was an extremely difficult learning for me to have in my life. Because, again, being a tightwad doesn't go away overnight, you know. It takes some time. But after that period of five years, uh, we've given 10% of our income or more away, and I don't even think about it, to be honest. Because the reality is I don't even see it as mine. I see it as what God has already blessed me with. You know, most of us assume this. We assume that people who make less money have a more difficult time giving that money away financially. But Dr. Brooks actually found the total opposite truth. He found that the working poor in America actually give more money away, percentage-wise, than the middle class. Can you believe that? People who are working poor, give more away than the middle class. And do you know which segment of our culture gives the least amount away? The wealthiest people, the people who have the most wealth. It kind of reminds me of this story of a real wealthy person who had come to Christ and he started hearing about this tithing thing of giving 10% of your income to God. And so he pulled his buddy aside, who was a Christ follower, and he said, there ain't no way I can do this. I made $300,000 last year. That means I'm going to have to give $30,000 away? I don't think it's going to happen. Would you pray with me about this? And his friend said, sure, I'll pray. And this was his friend's prayer. Lord, please lower my friend's income to the point where he can afford to give. How many of you came here in a car today? Raise your hand. Almost all of us. If you came in a car today, you are in the 90th percentile of the most wealthiest people in the world. In the world, if you came here in a car today. And God is just saying, just as I have been generous to you, I want you to be generous to other people. Economic times, folks, are a time for people to be generous. Here's the last thing. If you want to ride out an economic storm, you have to be humble enough to live on less. You have to be humble enough to live on less. Obviously, even with the outstanding preparation for Egypt's economic storm, Joseph had to convince people that, hey, (coughs) we're in a storm now, and so we've got to spend less. We've got to slow down our spending. And if you've had to file bankruptcy, if you've lost your house, if you've had huge medical bills, if you've lost your job, you've got to slow down the rate of your spending. But you know what? Many Americans never do. They just keep going deeper and deeper in debt, and it gets heavier and heavier on their shoulders. Friends, it takes humility to live on less. There's a married couple in our uh, church who, a couple of years ago, the husband was commuting 160 miles uh, a day. In other words, uh, three hours on the road. He worked over 80 hours a week. He made really, really good money. But for some reason, 
The more money that he made, the more money that they spent, and the more money that they spent, the more debt they got in, and they spent less and less time with each other. But they said to themselves, there's no way we could live on less. And so they just kept going and spending more. Well, finally, he started having some health problems because of this craziness, and they're spending less time together. And they begin to start praying, and they came and they were talking to me, and, and I said, maybe, you know, you could just do something less. And they made a very bold decision. They developed a budget to live on less. They withdrew money from their 401k, and they paid off all their consumer credit. Their, their retirement, they paid it off. Then he took a job that was only 30 minutes away, And he makes half of what he made before. And so this past week, I was just asking them, you know, well, how's it going? You know, it's been a year. You've kind of been doing this plan. And this is what they said. (coughs) Choosing to live on less was the best decision we ever made. We actually live life now. We're on a budget. Our relationship is better. We're connecting. We're no, no longer neglecting each other. We have been able to give more money, actually, to the things of God than we have the previous year. We're leading a small group in our home. God has, made, uh, more, God has met more than our needs. And what we thought was impossible, God made possible as we, choose, as we chose to live on less. Now, right now, some of you are working crazy hours. And you're making more money, but you're working more hours. And you're making more money, and you're spending more money. And you're getting in more debt. And if someone came up to you and said, hey, you know, I I don't know, but it might work if you lived on less and you just, you know, got out of debt, some of you would say, no way! I mean, even if God told you that, you're like, no way, I can't do that. Folks, it takes humility to live on less. Some of you have an automobile right now that your car payment is so huge that the greatest thing you could do is just say, you know what, I'm just going to live on less. I don't need an SUV. I can get a Yugo V, you know, and I'll be happy with it. But for some of you, your car your house, your whatever becomes an idol. Now, I've been driving my vehicle, which was a used vehicle when I bought it, but I've been driving it for 10 years. And I'm going to drive that thing until the wheels fall off of it. Okay? And you know why I love about my car? Is that every year when I get the insurance premium, it gets lower and lower and lower. And I've got a couple dings on it. You can go out here and look. On the front bumper and the back bumper, there are two dings that are both there. I had a buddy of mine, he's like, dude, your wife's a doctor, get those fixed. I went ahead, I called, tried to get an estimate of what it was cost. I'll live with the dings. (laughs) And the reality is, is that some of you need to live on less and be willing to live with a couple of dings. Jennifer and I have this rule in our marriage. We don't buy clothes that are on sale. When she walks into Kohl's, they want to leave because they know they're not going to make money off of her. She'll go in there with 30s upon 30s. Our sister used to work at Kohl's. She's doing something illegal, I'm sure. But we do not buy clothes if they're not on sale. And when it comes to kids eat free, we know where those places are. We go to Fazoli's, we go to Steak and Shake, and you know what, folks? I'm not too proud to tell you that's the way we roll. And for some of you, you're in an economic storm right now, and you know what you could do? after the Super Bowl, get rid of your cable. Some of you could go from three Starbucks a week to one 
Starbucks a week. There are so many ways, folks, that you can save money. And honestly, you need to really consider what those are. Now, when Jennifer and I first got married, we didn't have a plan. We didn't have a focus. There was nothing that was helping us. And we got some credit cards. And we got in credit card debt. You see, our problem was we thought you took this card and you used it and you just kept using it until they sent you another card. And then you took that card and you kept using it until, you know, and I'll never forget in 1995, uh, we were making $16,000 a year and I sat down and I couldn't pay the minimum payment of our credit card. And I said, that's it. We cut up our credit cards on that day. We made a vow to God that we would never get to the point where we allowed consumer debt to control our lives. And it took us about a year. We had to lower our pride. I got a friend of mine who's an accountant to come in to show me how to do a budget. But we did all the steps that we could. And 16 years later, I can tell you, I got a credit card now but I can always pay off my balance every single month. Now, some of you know me well enough, you're like, yeah, but your wife's a doctor, dude. In 95, 96, 97, 98, she was not a doctor. We made 16, 17 at the most. I made $20,000. We learned how to live on less in those times so that we learn how to live on less when the income is north of that. And I just share that with you because you've got to know that this is what it means to overcome economic storms. And the freedom that you get and the contentment that you have is worth it. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Be content with what you have. Isaiah 55.2 says this, Why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? Friends, the root of all of our financial difficulties and problems and stresses, at the bottom level, is an issue of trust. Who do you trust? Do you trust God with your resources or do you trust yourself? And you choose who you trust. The Bible says this, and it's a scripture maybe we should uh, try to memorize. It says this, If I put my trust in money, and if my happiness depends on wealth, it would mean that I denied the God of heaven. You see, folks, every time there's out-of-control finances in a person's life, there's out-of-control issues in the person's life. If there's mismanaged Uh, Money, it's just a symptom of a mismanaged life. Some of you, you don't just need Jesus to be the Savior of your life. You need Him to be the manager of your life. The CEO. The one who says, I freely give to you and now do money the way that I call you to manage it. Are you going to trust God with your money or are you going to trust yourself? And the choice is up to you. God says, regardless of what you choose, this is what my promise is. I will be with you in the midst of an economic storm. No matter what goes on in the storms that you go through, I will be with you. But why don't we trust him with that area of our life? This last verse, Psalm 20, verse 7, says this. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in cars, some trust in homes, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in 401Ks, some trust in IRAs, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in stocks, some trust in mutual funds, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Who are you going to trust with your future. What are you really trusting? You see, folks, trust funding is an issue of the heart. And at the issue of the heart is who do you trust more? 
yourself or God. Let's pray. Please stand. (coughs) And if uh, our prayer team will come up, if you'd like prayer for anything, uh, please feel free to come up. And if you're new, we have a free gift for you at Guest Connections uh, to take with you. Let's pray. God, I know that there are some people, brothers and sisters, who are in this gym today, God, who are going through an economic storm right now. And as I've talked and as I've shared, God, that some people just feel so overwhelmed. It's a scary time for them, God. They're doing it paycheck to paycheck. They're wondering if they can ever get out of it. And I just pray that just like Scotty and Shane in the video that we saw, that people would know there is hope. And there is the ability to get out and from underneath debt that can consume us. God, there are some people in this place, they're not in an economic storm right now. They're, they're doing well. I pray that you would help them to take a class, to know how to trust you more, how to save back during times of plenty for when there are times that are difficult. And God, for those who are in the middle of a storm, I pray that you would give them the wisdom to go to the class tomorrow night at here uh, on Monday, that uh, they would get a plan together, they'd start working the plan, they'd get some reserves God, help them to know that they're not alone in this. And forgive our pride, God, when we make so many different financial decisions trying to impress other people around us rather than trying to honor you. Help us to learn to live on less, God. Help us to know how to navigate through storms because we were willing in good times to know how to live on less. And God, as we talk about debt and we talk about finances, God, I thank you most of all this day for the debt that you allowed your son to be paid on a cross so that all of our sins could be forgiven. And God, whatever that step is that people need to take to trust you more, I pray that you would reveal that to them now and in this day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, guys.